Did everyone get their coffee? That line looked like it wasn't going to be over. I was kind of hoping I could slip in, but there was no slipping in that line. <laughs> the hotel coffee was okay, but not not enough caffeine for today. <laughs> I was like, these little cups, I got two of them. Um, I think I should have got three. Okay. I'm so excited to share with you this lesson today, but I'm going to warn you that both lessons today are going to talk about some topics that are very difficult for me that I have not shared um, in any public manner. Um, and so you'll have to forgive me that it's very likely to be very raw and very vulnerable. But um, I, told some, I told my daughter this morning, she texted me from Bible college and said, I'm praying for you. And I said, it's going to get messy today. And she said, share your heart, Mama. So that's what I'm going to do with you today. Mm-hmm. In the day of social media, I'm going to ask you to not video any of her sessions today. We are recording them, so if you need that, but we don't want anything on social media. I mean, a picture of her is fine, but do not take a video clip and record anything on social media. Understood? Yes. Thank you for understanding. Thank you. Today's lesson, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, because you'll get more out of it if you just jot down a little bit something that God gives you. It doesn't have to be every point, but maybe just a little something you can take home. Today's lesson is unstable. God is my refuge. Unstable. God is my refuge. And we're going to learn some lessons from the, from the life of the Shunammite woman. Um, but first, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, yesterday, I told you a little bit about my childhood, growing up in a Christian home, meeting my husband in Bible college, having four babies, and then starting the adoption journey. And we did adopt four children, and then I gave birth to one last little blessing. Um, so I do have five biological and four adopted, if you're counting, <laughs> which makes nine. Um, and so... I was literally living my childhood dream, except for one thing, and that was um, working with orphans overseas. And I also got to see God fulfill that dream. And so we sold everything that we owned, moved into a travel trailer, yes, with that many children. And for three and a half years, I lived on the road um, in a very small space, loving every minute of it. Um, and then we moved to Africa in 2017. Um, was it easy, any of that? No. But was I living my life stream? Absolutely. <laughs> um, we very quickly after arriving there took in three African children. So I had 12 children. Um, and nine of them were under the age of 12. <laughs> um, the, one of the, two of the ones that we took in as foster children were a set of 12-month-old twins. So lots of babies and I was very happy. My husband started pastoring in Africa, so I also was the pastor's wife, and we started preparing for um, launching a very large orphan ministry. We bought 23 acres of land, uh, we started building, we started training a team of nationals and Americans, we started an intern program, and brought in college-age girls to come and work in our ministry, and it was busy and crazy, and yes, I was living in Africa, which meant there were big snakes and spiders and 
crime like you would not believe and bars on our windows and panic buttons at night and and a lot of a lot of cultural things that we were living with and I was so happy and um, a year and a half ago in March actually the end of February um, one morning my seven then 17 year old son um, he didn't get out of bed and it was unusual. I had to wake up the younger children in the morning, but I never really had to wake up my older ones. And I, th I found it unusual. I thought, well, maybe he just stayed up too late and he's really tired. And so he actually texted me from his bedroom <laughs> and said, Mom, I woke up at four in so much pain, I can't get out of bed. And so I went and checked on him. And um, that was a Monday morning. And between Monday morning and the following Sunday, um, it was a nightmare week. Um, he was having severe stomach pain. And he, I, I actually took him to the ER that very first day because it was just so unusual. My mom radar was going off that, that this was probably appendicitis. And took him in, and it was Africa. I could tell you hours of stories of how <laughs> messed up the system was trying to get him actually even seen. Um, they finally sent us home that night saying, if he's still in pain tomorrow, bring him back in. We'll do an ultrasound. They didn't even look at anything that day. And of course, he couldn't eat, couldn't use the bathroom, was still in severe pain. So the next morning, I was right back at the hospital. And that's what that whole week looked like, um, back and forth to doctors. We ended up finally getting a uh, ultrasound. And I remember that moment where the ultrasound technician started typing things on the screen. And he couldn't see the screen. I could. Um, and I'm Googling fast as I can the words that she's writing, trying to figure out what she sees, because you know she's not going to tell me. And um, she left the room. Radiologist came in. He's also typing. And he said he needs a CT scan. And he left the room. And my son, Danny, is looking at me. And he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, that's probably your appendix. You know, we're finally going to get like an answer to this pain. So they did a CT scan and didn't give me the results. And so we're standing in the middle of the hospital. He's hurting. He hasn't eaten in several days now. And I said, what do I do now? And they're like, well, you could go back to the ER. Maybe that doctor will look at the results and tell you what to do. So I hauled him back to the ER. Um, and the ER doctor came out and said, well, we see something, but um, I'm going to give you medication for constipation and medication for diarrhea, which I'm thinking those actually work against each other, <laughs> and an antibiotic and a probiotic, and they also work against each other. And I'm thinking, what did you see on the scan? And um, she said, you know, well, I've referred you to a gastroenterologist. I'm like, that's great. Isn't there one here? Can't I see one today? No, you'll have to call them. They don't work at this hospital. So I sent my husband and my son home, and I went to the radiology department. And I said, I need a copy of the CT results. Oh, we don't give that out. I said, you're, you're going to give it to me. <laughs> I need to read it. I said, I, I'm an American. I live overseas. i got to keep my kids' re medical records. I need a copy. And she printed it, and she handed it to me. And I stood there in the middle of that radiology department in the hospital and read the words on the CT scan. They had highlighted it in bold um, that what they saw was a mass that was probable lymphoma and that further imaging was unnecessary. Surgical intervention was recommended. And they had just sent him home. 
And so I took this paper and I went mama bear mode for the next five days trying to get someone to see him. I called doctors seven hours away, eight hours away, hospitals. Nobody could get him in, the gastroenterologist. This was the first of March and the gastroenterologist said, I'll see him in May. <laughs> I'm like, he'll be dead, thank you. I need something quick. Um, I tell you this to tell you, you know, we complain about the American medical system, but <laughs> this was not fun. Um, Finally, on that Saturday, so it started, the pain started on Monday, on Saturday, um, I finally, I was online talking to some nurses and doctors here in the States and, and trying to figure out, what do I do? How do I get someone to actually look at him? And um, he texted me and he said, I cannot do this anymore. And I was like, okay, I put him in the car and I went to a different emergency room. And I said, you've got to see him. And as God would have it, there is one colorectal surgeon in an eight-hour radius of the city we were in, and he practiced in that hospital. And so that night, when they did another scan, and they saw a mass, and they finally contacted him, and he said, admit him, and, and they kept him. And the next morning, that doctor came in. He was, you know, a great surgeon, not a great bedside manner. <laughs> and he came in, and he's like, okay, it's one of these three things. <laughs> he's like, it's either um, an infection, but his white blood cell counts low, so it's not that, or it's um, Crohn's disease, but I've already got his stool sample back, and I don't think it's that, or it's lymphoma. And, and my son goes, what's that? <laughs> and he said, cancer. And, but in my mind, I was hearing there's a possibility it's Crohn's disease, and I just held on to that. And he said, so I need to operate in an hour. And um, he said, it'll take an hour and a half, and I'll send whatever I find to pathology. He's like, I like to take my time with pathology, so it'll be a little while before we get it back. I want to make sure they really look at it well. And and I'm, I'm not even really hearing what he's saying because I'm still thinking this is Crohn's disease. Like a kid doesn't go from healthy to cancer overnight with no symptoms. And so he, he wheeled him back and um, two and a half hours into the surgery when he wasn't back out, I knew. And I'm um, just watching the clock and the doctor finally came out in the, in the middle of the operation and he took a piece of paper with a sketch, like a like a, a digital image of the intestines and the inside of your body. And he said, okay, he's like, I took out a, this and this and this amount of his colon. I took his appendix while I was in there. I took 25 affected lymph nodes. He's like, and there was a large rock hard mass. And I took that and I'm cleaning him up now and oncology will be in touch. <laughs> and I'm like, trying to compute what he just said. I said, it's, and, and how much chance is there that it's still Crohn's disease? And he said, zero. <laughs> and I said, so it's cancer? He said, yes. And he's like, I don't recommend you tell him right now. And he walked out of the room. Now, before you judge that doctor, he's, he saved his life absolutely with what he did. So I'm very thankful, but it wasn't the best way to be told. Um, And my world came to a crashing halt. It was only a few minutes later before they wheeled my son out. He was waking up from surgery, and he's like, Mom's everything okay? And I'm like, it's great. 
you're going to be fine. And um, they took him to the ICU. And that began 18 months of the worst time of my life. And throughout today, I'll tell you more. But because I don't want to talk for three hours about this, we're going to talk a little bit about God. I thought before that day that I had faced some difficult things. I actually know I have. That one topped all of them. What happened after that topped that one. And so I don't want you to compare your pain to my pain or someone else's pain, because pain is pain. And the worst thing you've gone through is really bad. (laughs) And it doesn't have to be worse than someone else for it to be really painful for you. And so we talked last night about our relationship with God. And the reason I wanted to start there is because without a relationship with God, when your world gets shattered, you won't have what you need to make it through. And so today we're going to talk about how God is your refuge. What are you going to do when your faith is suddenly unstable? When everything's unpredictable, when your secure foundation is rocked, when your hope is doubting, and when your future is unsure, what then? The dictionary defines unstable as likely to give way. Have you ever been there? I am not going to be able to make it, right? Maybe you faced a life-changing event that felt as if your world was likely to give way. Or maybe you came to this conference desperate for hope because you're facing an event like that right now. I'm talking about infertility, a miscarriage. I'm talking about a car accident, a difficult diagnosis, a job loss. I'm talking about a financial crisis, cancer, maybe death. I'm talking about those life-changing events that weaken you to the point of being unstable, being likely to give way. And where do we go when we face those life events? That relationship with God. So turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. One of my absolute favorite stories in the Bible. I'm a real girly girl, in case you couldn't tell, because I'm like way too old to be wearing hair bows, and I do it anyway. <laughs> I love really feminine things, and I love womanhood and femininity. And so I love the stories in the Bible about women, because I can resonate with them. And this woman, I can so totally resonate with. We don't know her name, so we always call her the Shunammite woman, which sounds really weird, but that's what everybody refers to her as. And rather than read this whole story, because it's kind of long, I hope you don't mind if I take liberty to just tell you the story. I showed you where it is, and I'm going to read some of the verses, but I just I think I can just tell it to you, and you'll um, take my word for it that I'm taking it from God's word. So there's this woman, and she lives in, in the land of Shunam, and... The prophet comes through her way, and she is a great woman of faith. So when he comes through, she builds him a little room on her house. Now, most most Bible scholars will say that if they had the money, she and her husband, to build a room for the prophet, they probably were well-to-do. Um, she probably wasn't a poor, destitute woman. But she builds this room for him, and we we call it a prophet's chamber. A lot of churches will build a room like that for missionaries or pastors to come and stay, but just a place for him to rest when he traveled through. And he was so thankful to her that she built a room that 
Elisha sent his servant to do something for this woman. Um, but before I tell you that, let's look at point one if you're taking notes. Point one about this woman. She was a righteous woman. Now, I'm not saying that she was any different than you or me. She just had a heart for God. She was just willing to do what she could. And what she could do was build a little room and take care of the prophet when he came through. And it might look different what you can do, what your righteous act for the Lord is. But I would encourage you to take from this woman, just do something, right? Just do something for the Lord. So she's a righteous woman. But if we look ahead, um, I'm going to talk to you about verses 8 through 11. She makes this chamber, and then Elisha sends his servant to say, what can we do for you? So he basically wants to thank her. He wants to reward her for what she's done for him. Okay, And so she says, nothing. I'm fine. And it's pointed out to the servant that she doesn't have any children. Now, you and I know that most women, not all, but most women desire children. It's a God-given desire that he puts in us. Um, and so it's highly unlikely that this woman didn't want children. It's more than likely that she was barren. And so here you have a righteous woman who doesn't have any children. And... I find it interesting that right after we find out she's righteous, we find out that she didn't get everything she wanted. Did you know they don't go together? Sorry to pop your bubble, but serving God doesn't mean you're going to get everything you want. Okay? So doing right doesn't guarantee getting what you want. It doesn't guarantee a happily ever after ending. A loving spouse doesn't guarantee financial stability, health, or wealth. It doesn't guarantee the American dream. And if someone told you when you got saved that you were signing up for an easier life as a believer in Jesus, they sold you a false gospel. Now what you do have, the world can't take from you. And that's a peace that passes all understanding. But it doesn't mean that you're going to have everything you want on earth. What did Jesus say in John 15, 17 to 19? These things I command you that you love one another. If the world hate you, you knew that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. That doesn't sound like a prosperity gospel to me. And then he said in John 16, 33, which is just the very next chapter, and the same conversation with the disciples and my very favorite passage in the Bible, these things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He says, this is this passage in John. He's getting ready to leave his disciples. He's getting ready to be crucified. He knows this is the last conversation he's going to have with them. And instead of saying, life's about to get really amazing, he said, life's about to be really hard. I'm leaving. You're going to be sad. You see how they're treating me? They're going to treat you the same way. Everyone's going to hate you. Life's going to be miserable. Wow, I want to serve God. How about you? <laughs> like, it's not really a good salesman. <laughs> But then he says, be of good cheer. <laughs> I've overcome the world. 
And we have something that the world doesn't have and that the world cannot take away and that no earth-shattering event can change. And that is the peace of God in our hearts. And that's what Jesus promised to give us. So this woman, she's a righteous woman, number one. And number two, she was rewarded for her faith. So Elisha finds out she doesn't have any children, so what do you think Elisha does? He asks God to give her a baby. Now I know there are women in here like me who struggled with infertility. I know it's hard to believe because I have nine children, but it didn't start out that way. Um, And I was actually told directly to my face by multiple doctors that you will never have children. And I can imagine that news as a woman who's gone a long time without children and she's told you're going to have a baby. (laughs) I, I need you to look at this verse because in verse 16, the servant tells the Shunammite woman, about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And you know what she says? Nope. <laughs> she says, nay, my lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. Now, this is an important statement that she makes because she basically tells him, are you kidding me? Like, don't tease me with this news. Don't lead me on. Don't lie to me. Are you for real? I mean, we're putting it in the American (laughs) vernacular, right? Are you for real? And he says, yes. Verse 17, the woman conceived. So God rewarded her. Number two, she was rewarded for her faith. An unexpected reward for her selfless acts of faith. She wasn't expecting a son, and she even told the man not to lie to her about this gift, but she was still given a reward for her faith. Sometimes... Life is hard, but sometimes God just rewards us just because he can, just because he's so good, just because he sees that we're trying so hard that we love him. Sometimes when we're not trying hard and we're not doing a good job at loving him, he just rewards us, and he gives us a blessing. When I was going through the cancer journey with my son, um, my pastor preached a series of messages on Psalm 23, and I am going to steal a little bit of the lessons that I learned from him. Psalm 23 starts out, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And I want you to picture in your mind a shepherd and a bunch of sheep. And I'd come down here, but I'm afraid the people in the back won't be able to see me. But But the illustration is that the sheep are in the green pasture. And what are sheep doing when they're in green pasture? Yeah, something we all like to do. (laughs) They're just eating. Then after they eat, what do they do? Yeah, they lay around. (laughs) The sun feels nice. The grass is so cool. I'm full. I'm happy. I'm content. I'm around my other sheep. Life is comfortable. Do I even really know where the shepherd is? No. Am I really worried where he is? No, because I know he led me here, and he left me here to eat. So the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. So he gives us the hydration, right? The water, that cool running water. So the sheep are content. Now here's the part that really hit me. Have you ever felt a little guilty that when life is going well, you sort of pull away from God a little bit? See, I felt really guilty that whenever a trial came, I was like, where's, wow, that's about how it is too. Where is my Bible? (laughs) Right? Hello, God. I'm 
going through something, I need you again, right? Do we do that? Okay, so I almost felt guilty that in my relationship with God, during those restful, rewarding, comforting times, I wasn't seeking him out as much until it hit me. He designed it that way. That's why verse 4 comes in Psalm 23. Because he's going to take you out of that green pasture. And you needed that restful time to be ready for what's coming. And it's okay. So if today you're in a restful green pasture and you're like, I, this woman's talking about a lot of hard things and I'm, life's really good. Praise God. It's okay. But verse 4 is coming. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. It's coming in your life at some point. And you need that restful time because the valley of shadow of death is coming. All right, so she's rewarded. She's in that green pasture. She's got that baby that she's always wanted, and she's raising him. And then we look at verse 18. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said unto his father, My head, my head. And his father said to a lad, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. Now, I don't know about you, but if God had given me something that I had asked for him for a long time and then decided it was okay if I didn't have, and then he gave it to me anyway, and I told him not to lie to me, and then he took it, I would not be very happy. And I don't think she was either. She's holding her now dead son. So number three, she faced a great trial anyway. She's a righteous woman who God rewarded. She's having a restful period, and wham, she gets slapped upside the head with a great trial. And that's why the lesson today is God is my refuge, because that's what you're going to need when you get that trial. Verse 21, she went up. She laid him on the bed of the man of God. So she put him in Elisha's little chamber. She shut the door upon him, and she went out. Here we find the Shunammite woman facing an unstable foundation. Her world has just been rocked. She is, in essence, leaning up against a wall and looking for stability. I wrote a post a few months ago on my Instagram about the wall. Danny's surgery was on a Sunday morning. Monday morning when he was awake enough in the ICU, I told him that the doctor thought it was cancer, but that we wouldn't know for sure until pathology came back, hopeful that he had gotten it wrong until we had those actual results. So the next day, Tuesday, he's still in the hospital recovering from a major operation, and my husband and daughter had gone home, and it was just Danny and I. I was staying till he fell asleep to make sure he wasn't in pain before I left. 7.30 at night, and a strange man walks in the room. He says, my name is such and such, and I'm the oncologist. He's like, and I'm here to talk to you about your results from pathology. And, um, and I said, um, you mind if we talk in the hall? <laughs> and uh, in South Africa, you're an adult at 16. And that became part of the reason we had a lot of struggles in that following week, because he was a legal adult at 17. And to me, he was a baby. <laughs> I don't care if he's 6'2". <laughs> he's a baby, and he needs his mama, especially with what he was dealing with. Um, and the doctor asked his permission if he could step outside in the room and talk to me. And he's like, yes. <laughs> so we stepped out in the hall, and I tried to pull the door shut. It was a narrow hallway. 
and so my back was to the wall. And he started talking, and he said, I got the preliminary results back, and we're looking at either pediatric Burkitt lymphoma or um, lymphoblastic lymph uh, lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, and and I, I mean, I had done enough research to know a little bit about one, but not the other. And and pretty much everything he said after that was like that wah wah wah, <laughs> where your brain's trying really fast to compute. He said, I need. How, I need to know how many biological siblings he has because it's very likely I'm going to need to do a stem cell transplant and they're going to be the closest match. And I'm like, four. He has four. He's like, that's great. I've got a child right now that I cannot find a match for and he's going to die. <laughs> and I'm going, okay. And he said, I need to come tomorrow. I need to do, I need to do a bone marrow biopsy. And I need to do a full body scan. He said, if it's the cancer that I think it is, it is the fastest growing human cancer. And we do not have time to even wait for him to heal from his surgery before we start chemotherapy. And then he walked me over to a computer screen, pulled up his original scan, which was just of his stomach. And he said, so he's like, I need a PET scan. This is just CT. It's not clear enough. He's like, but, and he literally was drawing on the screen. He's like, I see cancer here, and I see cancer here, and I see cancer here. And I, and um, I started feeling like I was going to pass out. I was by myself. As it would have it, I was by myself for every single moment like this in this journey. And um, I just needed something to hold me up because I couldn't hold myself up. And I needed him to stop talking. <laughs> But he kept going. He said, I've got some bad news. He's like, I don't practice in this hospital, which was a private hospital. He said, I practice in the state hospital. And I knew what that meant. In Africa, you go to the state hospital to die. It is government health care, not private health care. And I knew exactly what he meant. He said, now tomorrow I need you to get your husband. I need you to come meet me in my rooms at the state hospital. He's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to close your eyes until you get to my room because I don't want you to see anything. And then he said, unfortunately, with him being 17, you can't be with him for any of the treatment. I was hearing how sick my son was and that he was going to be alone. And that I couldn't process anymore. And I started backing up, looking for that wall, hoping that it was going to hold me up. And when my hands hit it, I just slid straight to the floor. And he said, can I give you a hug? And in that hallway, that strange man wrapped me in a bear hug and just let me cry. That was a Tuesday night. A lot happened between Tuesday and Friday when Thanny was released from the hospital. But, um, <laughs> thank you. But um, he came home from the hospital on Friday night, and Saturday morning I got on an airplane with him and flew to America. Um, I knew, we knew there was no way. 
There's no way he could stay there. I didn't know what hospital I was going to. I didn't know where I was going to stay. I, we didn't have health insurance in America. We had health insurance in Africa. Um, if you want to talk about life being unstable, I left my husband, my other seven children, my foster children, three dogs, four pigs, 20 chickens, <laughs> two, two goats, two geese, a bird, a church. I left my whole life and just got on an airplane and came here. So I feel like I know what that woman felt when she put him on the on the bed and she shut the door. And she's like, what do I do now? And what she did is what I did. And I don't say that with pride. It was out of desperation that I turned to God because I literally didn't have anybody else that came here by myself. We got off the plane on a Sunday. I can't get my tablet on and I can't see, so wow, guys. Um, we... um. The next morning, we had found a pediatric oncologist that would see him, and they wanted to see him immediately. They almost came and saw him in the ho- in the hotel on Sunday, but he was internally bleeding from the trip, and his wounds not healing yet. He was a mess. Um, so the next morning, we met with a pediatric oncologist and started the additional testing and scanning and all the fun procedures that happened. You know, some people get cancer, and it's really like a slow process. Like, they're like, we'll scan you in three weeks. And I I don't know that, because I only know the kind of cancer we had that was so fast growing that, like, there was, like, nothing waited. It was boom, boom, boom. You had no time to even process. Like, we literally, within four days, were standing there looking at the PET scan results, the full-body PET, and he said, Okay, there is cancer here, 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 here. It's all over. And he said, it is stage four, and I need you to sign all the chemotherapy documents right now, and I'm going to wheel him from the doctor's office across the hall to the oncology ward and start chemo in the morning. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I became an expert at just listening and not processing and saying, okay, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> um. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, think it not strange. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Our family had chosen to serve God. We meant it. We had given everything up to live in Africa. And I was serving God with my whole heart, and so were so were my children. And Thanny walked through this as gracefully as any teenage boy ever could. And his testimony reached many, many people. But the Bible says, don't think it's strange when really bad things happen. 
Now, to me, that's the opposite of what it should be, right? We should think it's really strange because life's supposed to be good, but that's the, that's the kingdom. It's backwards. It's all backwards. The first are going to be last. The last are going to be first. The rich are going to be poor. Don't think it's strange when life gets really hard. I showed you a minute ago the valley or the, the restful pastures in Psalm 23. Well, we know verse 4 is coming, right? We're resting, we're eating, we're fat and comfy, we're happy. We know the shepherd's there. We still love him, but we're not really like hanging on to him for dear life or anything because we got all this food and water. And then he says, follow me. And what happens is all the sheep are in this big open space, and he says, here comes the valley of the shadow of death. But he goes first. There's no sheep's going anywhere without a shepherd. He goes first, and as he's walking, what happens to the sheep as they go through that narrow valley? They're really close, right? Because they're no longer wandering through this open pasture. There, it's the valley of the shadow of death. There's cliffs and danger, and it's getting dark. And you know what they're doing? They're getting up really close to that shepherd, and he's guiding them. And you know what's on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death? Green pastures again. Right? He knows you're running out here. He's got to get you over there. And so he leads us. And the thing that got me, that held me through this whole thing, was, yea, though I walk through, I am going to the other side. I am not staying in this valley of the shadow of death forever. It's God's promise. The green pastures are going to come again. I don't know how long it's going to take, and I don't know how dark it's going to be, and I don't know how, I don't know how hard it's going to be, but I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get to the other side. It's his promise. So this woman, her son has just died, this long-promised treasure, and... Number four, what did she do? She did what you need to do and what I had to do. She claimed what she knew about God. She claimed what she knew about God. Look at verse 22 to 27. She called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. She knew exactly where she was going to go when things got really bad. Now her husband says, why are you going to him today? He doesn't know the boy's dead. And she didn't tell him. And she's like, I'm going. Doesn't matter if it's not Sabbath. I'm paraphrasing here for the sake of time. So she went, verse 25, and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass when the man of God saw her afar off, he sent his servant to see her. And he says, behold, there's that woman. He knows her. He's like, go and check on her. Verse 26, run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with thy child? And she answered, it is well. What? <laughs> There's nothing well about this situation. She didn't say, it was well. And she didn't say, it will be well, because now I know you're going to help me. She said, it is well. Does that remind you of the words of a song? 
It Does Me, and that's where the song came from. Thousands of years after the Shunammite woman said them, Horatio Spafford wrote the lyrics to what is now a best-loved hymn. He knew something about life's unexpected challenges. He was a successful attorney and real estate investor who lost a fortune in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Around the same time, his beloved four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Thinking a vacation would do the family some good, he sent his wife and four daughters on a ship to... Hmm on a ship to England, planning to join them after he finished some pressing business at home. However, while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was involved in a terrible collision and sunk. More than 200 people lost their lives, including all four of Horatio Spafford's precious daughters. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy, and upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to her husband that said, Saved alone, what should I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England. At one point during his voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had struck the Spafford family, summoned Horatio to tell him that they were now passing over the spot where the shipwreck had occurred. As Horatio thought about his daughters, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind, and he wrote them down, and they have since became a well-loved hymn. When peace, like a river... Tendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. This Shunammite woman, she knew where to go in her pain, and she knew that it was going to be well. With God as my refuge, regardless of the circumstances of life, I can securely declare it is well right now even if I don't get the outcome I want. She did not know at that moment what God was going to do, but it was still well. Now number five, she questioned God. All right, ladies, this one gets a little personal. I grew up not questioning God. I grew up very much accepting that God was sovereign and it was my job to obey him and whatever he wanted was okay. I kind of grew up in a pretty authoritarian household where I wasn't allowed to say why. So I didn't ask God why either, because that was disrespectful, right? I've since learned, especially after reading the Psalms and reading the book of Job, that it is okay to ask God why. That just like a little two or three year old asks you why, like every other second, <laughs> it's not always disrespectful. Sometimes you just need to keep asking till you get the answer you need. So, number five, she questioned God. Verse 28. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? She's like, Did I ask for this? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? She's like, I told you not to lie to me if you were going to give me a child. And then he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins, and take my staff in thy hand, and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again, and lay my staff upon the face of the child. So she goes to Elisha, and she's like, Why? I didn't ask for this. Now remember, she just said it as well. Okay, So you can balance a full trust of God while still saying, Could you help me understand? okay. 
It's not disrespectful. Do you know what I've learned? God can totally handle your emotions. (laughs) He really can. He can make sense of it for you and with you. And sometimes in that asking why, in that holding on to him for dear life until he gives you an answer, which might take a while, I might add, it's not always quickly, that's where the relationship grows. Because you're in that valley and you're holding on real tight and you're learning of him and you're learning to trust him in a way that you just don't get in the green pasture. Because you have his presence. And I found in the deepest, darkest times of my life, when I've gotten up in the middle of the night and I can't sleep and I'm crying for hours and I'm saying, God, where are you? You know I loved you. You know I was willing to serve you. I know you're not punishing me. But why are you letting me hurt so bad? And asking him that why and letting him answer you is some of the sweetest, most beautiful times in your relationship with God. So number five, she questioned God. Now I'm going to jump right in here because you know I'm a practical teacher. I did this last night. I'll do it the next time. I'm going to give you some practical things real quick. I would write these down. They're a little bit more um, practical than just the, the other things we're talking about. Ten practical ways to hold on when you're grieving. And I I'm going to tell you this. Do you know you can grieve something that's very much still alive? We're going to talk more about that in our next session because we're going to talk about betrayal. And sometimes you're grieving the loss of a person or something, an event, or a life dream, and it's still very much alive. Okay, So grief doesn't always happen just with death, but it might apply to you with death. Ten practical ways to hold on when you're grieving. Number one, eat and drink whether you feel like it or not. It's very simple, but I'm telling you this is the number one thing. And if you are walking through a dark time with someone else, this is the first thing you need to tell them. Stop giving them Bible verses. Yes, I just told you that. Give them food, okay? Number one, eat and drink, whether you feel like it or not. Number two, listen to Christian music. Flood your soul with it. When you're crying, it's very unlikely that you can read the Bible. So just turn on music, okay? Just surround yourself with Christian music. Number three, read your Bible, even when your eyes are flooded with tears and God seems silent. Read your Bible. Number four, surround yourself with truth speakers. You need to hear it. Okay, this is an important one. If if you are questioning God, and it's okay, make sure that your closest people are going to point you in the right direction. It's very easy at that moment to question to the point of abandoning your faith when things get really dark. So make sure that you're surrounding yourself with truth speakers that are going to put you back on the right path. So if you're sitting there saying, life isn't fair, and I'm not going to make it, and why would God let this happen, which is all okay to have, right? It's okay to say that you've got some key people in your life that are going to be like, okay, I'm listening but God loves you, right? And they're going to wrap their arms around you and pray with you and keep you on the right path. So surround yourself with truth speakers. Number five, do the next thing. Guys, it doesn't get any more practical than this. When you are grieving, you're going to have to just get up and do the next thing. And that next thing might just be putting on clothes. 
It might be eating. It might be taking a walk. It might be feeding your children. Some of my darkest moments, my children have needed me, and I've had to get up and take care of them. Um, or your husband, or your job, right? We can't just quit life, okay? So do the next thing. Just one thing. Don't think, just do it, because one thing leads to another thing. Number six, sleep. Now remember, if you haven't gone through a dark time where these are helpful to you, write them down, because someone else in your life will need this, okay? And you're going to need to walk it with them, okay? Sleep. It is so important. Some of my darkest, deepest grieving moments, I just needed to sleep, <laughs> I needed to stop processing. I, my body needed rest. So sleep. Um, and I know sometimes we even have to like take a little something to help us sleep. And I, I've been there. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Just, just to get your body through that initial shock of deep grieving. Um, number seven, journal your emotions and journal God's truths. Now, why did I say both? Journal your emotions and journal God's truths. Because if you only journal your emotions, you're going to go to a really dark place. And if you only, only journal God's truths, you might miss the relationship and the things that you're going to learn. So, so it's okay to journal both. This is how I'm feeling, but this is what God says, which we talked about last night. Okay. Number eight, keep gentle survival routines in place until you can thrive again. Okay, just make a list. What do I absolutely have to do? Do you know grief can take a really long time? And you can't stop eating and sleeping and drinking and taking care of your kids and going to work, right? So what's the bare minimum that I have to do? Make a list and tell yourself, no matter how I feel tomorrow, I'm doing these things, okay? Just a survival routine. I, I actually, and I'll go more into this in the next session, I went into a darker grieving point after what I just told you. And when that happened, I actually needed somebody to do all these things with me. I couldn't even do them myself, okay? So that's why I'm sharing them with you. Number eight, look for beauty in everyday living. Guys, this changed my life. I woke up every day, and I still do it. If you follow me on social media, you'll see it. <laughs> every single day, I'm like, there's got to be beauty today. There's got to be. What's the point of living if there's nothing beautiful? And at first, I was literally grabbing for like, the sun is shining. That's kind of pretty. <laughs> I took a picture of the sun every day. I was like, ah, that's all I got. <laughs> Everything else in life is really hard. <laughs> okay, but look for beauty. Why? Because if you're purposefully looking for beauty, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see beauty. And you know who created the beauty? God. And what does that mean? That God's still sovereign. God's still creating beauty. God's still in control. Therefore, I can meditate on the goodness of God. It's a discipline. And when you do it, wow, you will see beauty everywhere you look. And number 10, really basic guys but make quitting not an option I had to take I can't do this just out of my vocabulary guess what I can't but I'm not quitting so quitting is not an option I've said it about a thousand times in the last 18 months my kids say it to me now I'm like I can't do this but quitting is not an option mom <laughs> Okay, then I got to go forward all right so number six and we're almost done she held on until she got an answer I'm not going to read this, but Elisha tries to send his servant to go and put his staff on the boys, on the boy who's dead, and probably raise him to life. And I believe he had the power to do so. And you know what she said? Uh-uh. <sighs> she literally says, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. 
So he rose up and followed her. <laughs> okay, let me tell you something. The persistent prayer works. She held on till she got an answer. It's okay to hold on to God and say, I'm gonna I'm gonna need you to move and I'm gonna hold on till you do. That doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna get the answer you want, but that journey of holding on until he gives you an answer is really, really powerful. It is, I know this is a shocker, but it is acceptable to repeat yourself to God. <laughs> Read the book of Psalms if you think that it's not acceptable to repeat yourself. It's a lot of repetitive. I'm reading Psalms right now, and I'm like, David, I, I so hear you. Like, I so resonate with you. And, and my little nine-year-old was sitting next to me when I was journaling the other day. And he was journaling in his, in his um, Bible, too. And he's like underlining verses. And he's like, David's so funny. I said, why? He goes, because look at him. My God, my God, where are you? I'm so sad. I'm so sad. And in the next chapter, he's like, you're amazing. <laughs> I was like, well, that's the Christian walk right there. <laughs> that's us. We're like, wait, you forgot about me. And then you're like, oh, my God is so amazing. Yeah, a nine-year-old sees it. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man does availeth much. All right, number seven and the last point, she praised God for the outcome. Verse 37 and 38, then she went in and fell at his feet. Well, let me, let me skip over the fact that Elisha did raise the boy back to life. She went in, she fell at his feet, she bowed herself to the ground, and she took up her son and went out. She fell at Elisha's feet, and she thanked him. Don't forget when God answers your prayer and you're back in the green pastures to thank God and praise him for what he's done and tell everyone around you how good your God is. Because guess what? They might be about to go through the valley of the shadow of death and they might need to see that you made it through and you're still okay. <laughs> you might be the strength that they need to see. Listen to these verses in closing about God being your refuge. These all come from Psalms because it's, it's my favorite right now. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him will I trust. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, because of his strength will I wait upon thee, for God is my defense. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing, for God is my defense, and the God of my mercy, the God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. He saveth me from violence. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. My friend, you have the answer. The Christian life is not a call to a life of ease. You will have times of green pastures, and I promise you, you will face the valley of the shadow of death. My story is going to get worse before it gets better. As a matter of fact, it hasn't really gotten better yet. I'll tell you about that in the next session. But I'm going to tell you what I learned 
and am learning and am clinging to in the valley of the shadow of death, and that is that my God is my refuge. He is my safe place. He is my tower. He is my strength. He is my all. And no matter what you face and no matter what I face, if we turn to God, we will make it. The world may spin and shake. Your foundation may be stripped right out from under you. But you have one sure foundation, one hope, one comfort to turn to, and that's your God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for the hope that you offer each one of us. And I thank you that you love us, that you want a relationship with us, that you allow us to go through the dark times in life so that we can look to you, so that we can hold on to you, so we can draw closer to you, we can feel your presence, we can make you known among the nations because we know that our God, he saves, he's real, he's present in our lives. He changes us. He molds us. And I just thank you so much for loving us. Please work in each one of our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.